And one more thing, folks. You're about to hear a rerun episode of the show. An excellent episode featuring movie star Jonah Hill, also a mom driven mad by Legos, but still... (laughs) Still a rerun, but... Hey, we've also got something super special planned for you podcasters later this week. On Tuesday, June 24th, we'll be uploading our full interview with Mr. Steve Martin, featuring lots of never-before-heard material just in time for his July 4th holiday shows at the Hollywood Bowl. You can hear him compare banjo music to paintings by de Kooning. At last. And do his Ruprecht voice. For free. For free and only via podcast. Be sure to check in and download it on Tuesday, June 24th. Meanwhile, here's this week's icebreaker. So two cupcakes are sitting in an oven, and one cupcake says to the other cupcake, man, it's hot in here. And the other cupcake says, oh my God, a talking cupcake. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from actor Jonah Hill, Oscar nominee for The Wolf of Wall Street. That'll break the ice. Later, Jonah tells us about Martin Scorsese and other directors. Stanley Kubrick's favorite film of the 1990s was White Men Can't Jump. Seriously. And if that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode we aired back in February. So cast your mind back to a time when most Americans weren't following soccer very closely. Football. When, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. We are speaking with Stacey Vanek-Smith. She is senior reporter at the business show Marketplace. Stacey, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, as it turns out, this ancient Viking code has been cracked. Like brotherhood, like secret code, Uh, like we will never tell them about why we wear horns on our helmets. (laughs) (laughs) They used coded runes to pass messages and the codes had never been cracked and they were they were finally cracked by this researcher at Norway's uh, University of Oslo. Interesting. So what does it turn out they were using the code for? Battle plans or something? Um, Broadsword technique? No, love, love notes, actually, as it turns out. Really? What? Yeah, no. Eric says, be (laughs) mine. You've pillaged my heart. (laughs) No, uh, actually, this guy found um, in in a piece of bone in Sweden Mm. uh, a coded message that was carved into the bone saying, kiss me. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) If you can find his lips through the beard. It's like some Viking candy heart. Yeah, it's a Viking candy heart. They probably also carve words into actual hearts, but they just didn't. (laughs) Right. But this code, so is that all it was used for? I mean, it was mainly for love letters? Well, no, they think it was actually, they weren't sure what it was used for for a long time. They think it was just actually used now to pass kind of frivolous messages along. Apparently, the Vikings were were fun. They had an inner (laughs) life that we we have. (laughs) This must be disappointing if you're studying Vikings. I I imagine you're kind of drawn to it because you like the tough kind of masculine. And now your whole life's work, all of a sudden at the end, it's like, love you. That's, Miss you. That's got to be disappointing. It's exactly what you didn't want to discover. Yeah, no, that's true. They were the Vikings were actually very sensitive, soft-hearted folk, and yeah. you know, all the pillaging was just a way of manifesting a lot of the pain they were feeling on the inside. <laughs> oh, oh, thank yeah. you, Doctor Vanek Smith. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our thoughtful, yet occasionally tipsy, history lesson with booze. First, the history part this week back in 1935, Parker Brothers started selling the game Monopoly. And the story of how that happened is as involved as the game itself. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. The game about becoming a rich landlord was invented by a woman who hated rich landlords. Her name was Elizabeth McGee. 
and in 1904, she patented a board game in which players bought and sold property. Her goal? To educate people. She figured it would demonstrate how land monopolies made the owners rich and left the renters broke. She called it the landlord's game. At first, McGee published the game herself, but in 1910, she offered it to Parker Brothers. They declined too educational, they said. And they were kind of right, because meanwhile, actual economics professors discovered the game and had students play it in class. Those students taught the game to friends using homemade boards. Soon it spread around the East Coast. Folks added their own rules. They renamed the game's make-believe parcels of land after streets in their hometowns. And in 1933, it reached Philadelphia, where an unemployed salesman named Charles Darrow played it, got a big idea. Darrow manufactured his own version of the game. He sold thousands of them in Philly department stores. People loved it. And when Parker Brothers heard about that, they agreed to market Monopoly. Darrow's new name for the game, they'd turned down 25 years earlier. Time, the company thought Darrow was the sole inventor. But when they found McGee's patents, they had to strike a deal. As payment for not suing them, they gave her 500 bucks and published three of her games. None did as well as Monopoly, though. It made Charles Darrow a millionaire. So that's the history. Now for the drink. We're speaking with Dimitri Karnesis. He is a bartender at Doc's Oyster House in Atlantic City. It's located on Atlantic Avenue. And if that sounds familiar, that's because the properties in Charles Darrow's Monopoly were named after Atlantic City streets. Dimitri, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? I came up with what I like to call the boardwalk fizz. It's kind of a (laughs) classic play on the French 75 and the famous Ramos gin fizz. All right, so how do you make the boardwalk fizz? So what I did was I muddled a lemon. Okay. And I used one and a half ounces of uh, Ransom Old Tom Gin, which is a classic 1800s kind of recipe for gin, and it's a brown gin to, you know, kind of have that old classic feel to it. That seems crazy to me, though. Isn't the whole point of gin is that it's not brown? It's absolutely fantastic. All right. Well, I still think brown gin's whiskey. Uh, (laughs) What else is in your drink? Um, One egg white, simple syrup to taste. Um, And then what I did was I shook it dry to really get like a good froth and a good head on it. Then I added ice, shook it a bit more, and then uh, I added champagne just for a little bit of that park place kind of decadence, Uh and strained it into a classic champagne coupe glass. And if you don't have that, that's fine. Just use a martini glass. And then a couple of dashes of bitters on top. All right. And if you happen to have a monocle lying around, go for it. (laughs) So you can garnish it with the monocle. I was thinking you could garnish it with one of those little red houses or green houses, like a hotel. Oh, that's right. So, Dimitri, are you from Atlantic City? No, not originally. I was born and raised in Savannah, Georgia, but uh, I've been here for quite a while, and I've been at Docks for for quite a while as well. Right, and so do you uh, move properties there? Like, do you own any property in Atlantic City? I do, and then I I charge astronomical rent if you happen to land on Georgia Avenue. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Brendan did a quick online search of properties for sale on Boardwalk in Atlantic City. Okay, the most expensive property on the Monopoly board. Of course, just 90 grand for a condo, I Mm. found. Pretty cheap. Maybe the landlord hasn't also bought Park Place yet. (laughs) So, 
Yeah, then it's all going to gentrify <laughs> on boardwalk. Yoga, juice, bars <laughs> popping up near you. Uh, people, our cocktail recipes are free. They're at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest is writer and producer Bo Williman. His play Farragut North was adapted into the movie The Ides of March, directed by George Clooney. Mm. And he's the creative force behind the Emmy-winning TV show House of Cards. If you haven't seen it, it's a political drama starring Kevin Spacey as a manipulative Southern congressman. Bo's here to list some other manipulators. Hi, my name is Bo Williman. I'm the showrunner for House of Cards. Season two of House of Cards just went up on Netflix, all 13 episodes on the same day, Valentine's Day, nothing more romantic. The show centers on a political power couple played by Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright and their ruthless ascent through the ranks of power in D.C. And I've been thinking quite a bit lately about scheming outside the realm of politics. So here's a short list of schemers who have influenced me. So my first schemer is the DJ and mashup artist known as Girl Talk. The music is an assault on the senses in all the best ways. It is mashing together R&B on one hand and classic rock and death metal. What he's doing is playing with expectations in ways that make you rethink all of your experiences with these songs by placing them in a new context. House of Cards, it's not as though Francis Underwood, the, the main character, it's not as though he's looking 15 moves ahead and playing a game of political chess. In fact, uh, in Washington, it's much more like jazz. It's chaos. It's reacting to what you can't control and trying to mold it into something that you can. And with Girl Talk, you see something similar. He is taking all of these memories that people have had with these songs to form a new experience. You're casting a spell in a way like playing God. It's a form of power. And now for something completely different, I want to time warp back to the 19th century and the great French novels. Balzac's Lost Illusions uh, is one of the great novels of Western civilization. It centers on an ambitious, unknown poet that makes his way to Paris and finds that really the only way to achieve artistic success is to lie, cheat, steal, and in so doing, really loses his soul and his artistic vision. There's something attractive about the climber. Even when they're being their most dastardly, you sometimes find yourself rooting for them despite yourself. We all wish that we could dispense with the rules. Those of us that try to follow them or pretend to follow them see in these characters people that are not shackled to convention or to the law, and we can't get enough of it. Now, I think that there's someone else in the world of music who is, in a lot of ways, equally subversive and transgressive, and that would be Miley Cyrus. I came in like a I love Miley Cyrus. You know, she's gotten a lot of praise lately and a lot of detractors as well. And I think that's exactly what she's after. Yeah, you, you me. 
You look at Miley right now, who's got her short hair and sticks her tongue out and seems unable to wear clothing. But if you compare that Miley to the one who sang Jolene in the Backyard Sessions, one of the great covers of Jolene ever done. Jolene. Seeing that song and then switching over to what she did at VMAs uh, is this great act of chameleonism uh, on par, I think, with a Madonna or a Michael Jackson. And if she didn't have the goods, if she didn't have the talent, then it would seem desperate or a stretch. But she has the pipes. We are now in an age that is inundated with videos, blogs, streaming services, public radio. There's a lot of competition out there. And so you have to scheme to a degree in order to get your talent out there. And she has done a pretty remarkable job at accomplishing just that. The guest list from Bo Willimon, architect of TV's political drama House of Cards. The second season came out on Netflix on Valentine's Day like a heart-shaped box full of cynicism and machinations. You can watch it when you're alone. Very appropriate. All right, coming up, find out what made Oscar nominee Jonah Hill do this. I literally ran around the street screaming. Other than being on our show, of course. Plus, Legos, Toast, and Woods. Fun. When the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in February. Later, you'll hear our chat with the most celebrated sound man in Hollywood. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and it's actor Jonah Hill. He's known for broad comedies like Superbad and the current hit 22 Jump Street, but he's had a parallel career in acclaimed dramas. He got his second Oscar nomination this year for Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. It's the true tale of Jordan Belfort, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who ran a decadent, drug-fueled Wall Street firm and was eventually jailed for securities fraud. Jonah plays his business partner, Donnie. When we met in February, I started by asking about Jonah's early days writing plays, which he'd read aloud at a New York City bar. They were horrible, and and they were one-act plays. They're just all bad, uh, but you know, they uh, you know there was one about Adolf Hitler's roommate in college, and how Hitler lived with three roommates who bullied him, and that's why he became so evil. So it was a, it was a cautionary tale. I guess yes, it was anti-bullying. You were way ahead of the curve on that. I guess so. It was so stupid. I'm so embarrassed about. I mean, obviously this is. But people actually, you know, started to follow them and, and they, they did become popular. Like more and more people came every week and, and I would do one every week. So I would, the challenge would be to write a whole one act play every week. You ever think about publishing these? I think it would be fascinating. <laughs> well, they're, they're, I would love to read them, actually. I'd it's pretty horrifying to go. I don't know if you listen to interviews that you've done oh, God. starting out and it's pretty embarrassing to go listen to them. The first time I was on the radio, I sounded like Alvin and the Chipmunks. I talked so fast. Oh, my gosh. I made the mistake of reading an interview I did. I was going cleaning stuff out of my house and I, I found it, me and Michael Sarah on the cover of L.A. Weekly when I'm 22 or 23 years old. And every answer, I just sound so stupid. And like, the problem is that you think you know so much, or I did at least, and I knew nothing. I never thought about that. Like the, the curse of being a young actor is that 
anything you think somebody is probably recording and then it lives forever <laughs> mine were unfortunately will live forever so or you know but i'm not complaining i'm i'm the luckiest guy ever uh, well speaking of which so you go from in about 10 years you go from reading your plays in bars in new york to scorsese tell me i know you're a huge fan of him tell me about the moment you get that call it was it, it was he's my hero you know i saw goodfellas when i was nine years old well, way too early to have seen Goodfellas. And it was that moment that I decided to dedicate my life to film. And so I was eating dinner in New Orleans. I was shooting a film and I got a call from Leonardo DiCaprio and he was like, you got the part. We're going to go make this movie. That that moment, that was the best moment of my life. You know? what, how did you celebrate? You were in New Orleans. There's a lot of ways I you can know, celebrate. I, I had worked the next day. I literally ran around the street screaming, <laughs> but I had to also call all of my friends and family because I hadn't told them I was even up for the part. You know, I wouldn't want to jinx it or assumed I wasn't going to get it. And I did the same thing with Moneyball. So they had no clue this was even a possibility. And then it's like, hey, I'm going to star opposite Leo in a Martin Scorsese film. And everyone was like, <laughs> what is happening to your life, you know? And then I was by myself in New Orleans, so then I just went home, and it was that's that's a lot of the funny part about show businesses to me, or or all this stuff, is that this incredibly insane stuff will happen like that, but then you're just in a hotel room by yourself. You're still a guy. Yeah, you're still just a guy. Like I'll check my email, or like you think confetti shoots out of the walls or something, you know? But it is. You have to realize, like, you need a life outside of all of this stuff that's very important because this stuff is so amazing and exciting and an honor, but it's not real life, you know? And then there's a, there's also a different, I imagine, a different realization settles in that now you have to deliver for Martin Scorsese, your hero. Yes. Oh, there's so many stories about fear and panic involving all of what you're talking about, but, you know, the first day of rehearsals was crazy because for the first month and a half of rehearsals, it was just... Scorsese, Leo, and myself in a rehearsal space. They had also made five films with one another and had an incredible shorthand and in, in knowledge of how the other one works. So I, I felt, the way I always speak about them, you know when you're, when you're single and you go to dinner with a couple that's amazing, this amazing couple, and you leave the dinner and you're walking home and you go to yourself, man, I hope I find what they have one day. That's the way I feel as an actor. I hope I find that with a director the way... Leo and Scorsese have found that with one another. This film presents just a cavalcade of drug-fueled, in some cases really hateful behavior. A lot of it satirically played for laughs. Many critics have taken it to task for actually going all the way back around and actually glorifying Jordan Belfort and his crimes, which hurt a lot of people. Does that backlash kind of surprise you? You know, Martin Scorsese films, he... He'll be the first to tell you he's no stranger to controversy, you know, starting with Mean Streets and the amount of cursing in that film and Last Temptation of Christ. There were picketers outside. And I think he holds a mirror up to people sometimes. And I think sometimes they don't like the reflection that they see back. Well, I think what they don't like is how they see others reacting. There's a story about this movie being screened near Goldman Sachs and the audience cheered for Belfort. You know, Leo and I would talk a lot about I bet you certain people are going to want to become stockbrokers after seeing this film. And that was weird to talk about. When I saw Goodfellas, you know, I would watch Goodfellas at 9 or 10 and say, well, these guys are the coolest people in the entire world. But if you watch the third act of that film, everyone's either dead or, you know, or in a horrible situation. I think what's interesting about Wolf that gives some people a hard time is because these people aren't accurately punished for their crimes. And that 
is the point of the movie. These people did horrible things and they get slapped on the wrist. Now, whose fault is that? Is that Martin Scorsese's fault? <laughs> it's not. He accurately portrayed what these people were living like. And it's, it's up to everyone to talk and create a dialogue and say what they feel about that. We have two questions that we ask everyone on our show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Uh, <laughs> maybe, what's Brad Pitt like? He <laughs> was the star of Moneyball. <laughs> I just, it's just funny. I, I, I prefer not to talk about myself or movies when I'm in a social situation because I don't like when most of the conversation is about what I do for a living instead of everyone getting to know each other. Brad Pitt is a distraction. No, Brad's the best. That's, he's, that's an easy question to answer because you just go, he's a great guy, which is true. Yeah. But that's also a boring answer. Yes. Yeah, and all my answers are boring. <laughs> all right, here's our second question, which is sort of the flip side of this. Uh-huh. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. This could be about yourself, or it could be a piece of trivia about the world, something about oh, making these movies. One. I've read that Stanley Kubrick's favorite film of the 1990s was White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> Where did you f- hear this? I read it and then asked a bunch of people and they had heard the same thing. So, I mean, he's obviously not with us any longer, so we can't ask him. But in the research I've done, it seems to be true. And I find that to be amazing. All right, so first of all, Brendan, it turns out Criterion interviewed Kubrick's friends and family about his tastes, uh-huh. and White Men Can't Jump was indeed one of his favorite films. Wow. It's amazing. That, that could explain Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> it's, I think it was a direct <laughs> influence. And secondly, folks, if you're wondering why we are playing the song Don't Dream It's Over right now, that is because Jonas said he chose it as his Wolf of Wall Street character's theme song. He explains why, talks about Superbad, and lots more in the extended cut of our interview. It's at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Last weekend, the Lego movie ruled the box office. One person who isn't celebrating is writer Arlena Tabensky. Today, we overhear her explain why. Hi, my name is Arlena Tabensky, and this is a piece I wrote called Another Day in Bricksburg. You love the kids. It's not that. It's the Lego that's pushing you toward a primary colored edge you didn't even know was there. And now, to add insult to injury, here comes the box office record-smashing Lego movie called The Lego Movie. You know the lingo and are intimate with the vocabulary of your tormentor. It is always Lego, never Legos. They are bricks, not pieces. The humanoids are called minifigures, not dolls, guys, or dudes. Lego is unisex. Lego is not a toy. It's a tool. But like an airborne Ebola virus, Lego cannot be contained. You have Lego in the bathtub, Lego crammed between couch cushions, Lego in the naughty drawer next to your marital bed because you didn't know where the hell else to put the Lego. You have, in your weaker moments, gleefully vacuumed up bricks without apology, smiling to yourself, smug as a contract killer as Lego after Lego after Lego clattered up the Dyson's sinister throat. Not proud, not sorry. This is war. And yet, 
When you least expect it, that exquisite moment arrives when the children are quiet as brain surgeons. Pin-spotted by a heavenly light, a choir of Harvard Law School admissions interviewers sing Verdi. Their mouths perfect O's as your progeny's small hands reach tremblingly into the chaos, seeking the perfect brick, the right helmet, the jet ski windshield from that party at Legoland last weekend where you spent your last unemployment check on a Yoda minifigure keychain and two SpongeBob SquarePants bikini bottom playsets. They pick through their collection like seagulls on a landfill, slack-jawed with higher brain function reverie. You suddenly feel perhaps not like the best parent ever, but at the very least, like you are doing one thing right. If this keeps up, can MIT be far behind? And then... In a moment, the blink of an eye, all the time a tragedy needs to take root. The sound. Death squeals from an abattoir are sweet music compared to this cacophony. The sound always lasts longer than the laws of physics allow. Those gifted and talented knee-biting engineers have, again, dumped a lifetime's collection onto the floor where they feel it belongs. Lego has become your unplanned third child, a messy, vindictive, self-centered toddler, the red-headed hanger-on that surely cannot be yours. Right now, you are online ordering tickets to the Lego movie for your fifth screening now. There is no turning back. Lego is forever, and it's going to chase you all the way to hell. You are way too invested. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome. Arlena Tabensky with an excerpt from her essay, Another Day in Bricksburg. The whole thing's online at McSweeney's Internet Tendency. And you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media, which is a tool and a toy. And now the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a party, the food. So, Rico, California's Bay Area is one of the great food regions. Of course. That's undeniable. Food pioneer Alice Waters started Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Sure. There are great farmers and roasters there. The Mission District has the largest burritos on earth and the heaviest. That's, <laughs> that's true, too. But the latest food sensation there is toast. Toast. Toast, a slice of bread, heat it up. Oh, no. And what's more, a slice of nice toast can set you back $4. What? Yes. So to find out if this was a case of the emperor's new toast, <laughs> I went to a place called The Mill in San Francisco, where I met John Birdsall, a writer for the food blog Chow, and he told me about Bay Area toast culture. It started really about a year ago when the mill opened. And the mill uh, has two businesses inside. One is Four Barrel Coffee. Uh, The other one is Josie Baker Bread. And Josie Baker is a great guy who just really loved bread. And he started uh, a bread CSA a few years ago. Uh, He was bartending at the time. And he would make bread at home. And then you could pick up your loaves at the bar. 
And eventually he saved up enough money that he got a baking space. And so now he shares space with Four Barrel Coffee. So it sounds like Josie really cares about his bread. He's a craftsman. And I'm looking at this toast and it is beautiful. It's thick. There's variations. You're having a raisin bread. I'm having a dark rye. It's hearty bread. Still, people writing about the toast, though, haven't focused exclusively on the quality the price tag raised a few eyebrows. Right. So the way that $4 Toast became this kind of meme in San Francisco was that a few tech writers jumped on it. Last summer, the story in Venture Beat was titled $4 Toast, Why the Tech Industry is Ruining San Francisco. And the other thing to know about San Francisco right now is that it's really a wash in tech money. And $4 Toast became a symbol of this new tech class, really. You know, everyone thinks of them as these 25-year-old engineers who are making tons of money, buying up prime real estate in places where other San Franciscans are priced out of. So it's like, the, it's like a gentrification debate. Exactly. And $4 Toast became the convenient symbol of everything that's wrong about the new tech economy. Because that's a lot of money for a slice of toast. It sounds like a lot of money for a slice of toast, right? $4 for something, you know, a thick slab of toast that took intention and time and patience. And this whole other network of farmers who are raising grains in a certain way and, you know, a miller who is milling it in a certain way. I feel like I'm buying that whole system and I'm helping to keep that system alive. You know, a lot of people in San Francisco in the tech industry, they're creative people kind of making stuff that exists in the cloud. It's not tangible. And the thing about Josie Baker's bread is that it's tangible. It takes time and patience and it takes knowledge. And so there's kind of a fascination by this tech creative class for things like that. So I don't really know where I come down on this because I'm a little torn. On the one hand, I'm like, yes, yeah, this is quality stuff. We pay money for a latte and the beans and coffee really don't cost that much money. That's a huge markup. But something about toast... It just seems silly that just heated up bread would be over maybe even $2. Well, two things. One, you know, San Francisco has this amazing and very old bread culture. Sourdough you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. So our sourdough tradition goes back to the 19th century. Even in the 20th century, you know, over in Berkeley, Steve Sullivan of Acme Bread, you know, started making Levant, started making, you know, spontaneously fermented sourdough along French lines. Bread is one of those great foods of San Francisco. So to pay a premium for bread here doesn't seem outrageous to a lot of people here. It's in San Francisco's DNA, so people are comfortable buying high-quality product and spending a little more money for it. Right. The other thing is that in the West, we sort of look to American traditions and European traditions, like English traditions, and think of toast as something that's very insignificant. In fact, if you look East rather than West, you know, if you look to Asia, um, especially Japan, you know, you see this um, very old cafe culture that's devoted to toast. There are these um, very old cafes in Tokyo, over 100 years old, and their specialty is these toast sets. So it tends to be middle-aged businessmen who go there. They'll buy coffee and they'll buy a single thick slice of toast that's been buttered and sliced. All right, let's take a bite into, into the toast here. What did you got the uh, raisin, raisin toast? It's a raisin fennel bread and it's um, smeared with honey. And I have dark rye smeared with pumpkin butter and sea salt. It looks gorgeous. It's heavy in my hand, actually. It feels almost like a dumbbell for when you're for runners. Really hearty, hearty bread. I'll give you that. It's absolutely delicious. It's dense and satisfying. It's chewy and sort of elastic. No. Um, there's a really dark crust on the top, so it's so it's kind of crisp. And this is not something that you're just going to eat in two minutes and head for the door. I mean, this is something that you really have to spend some time with. Well, so you've been covering food for a while. You've lived here. 
while we were live, what is going to be the next toast that we're going to read about? A similar kind of thing that's being coming, some would say fetishized, others others would say finally being treated with this proper respect. I was talking with a chef friend of mine the other day, and she said that her sort of leading edge trend was going to be to open up a restaurant where they only use crock pots and microwaves. So maybe something like that. Microwave bread, $5? <laughs> yeah, $5, absolutely. John Birdsall, he wrote about $4 toast for the food website Chow, and he won a James Beard Award this year for another piece in Lucky Peach magazine. All right, and folks, we're going to take a break. Up next, we speak to one of the stars of the film's Gravity and Inside Lewin Davis, whose work doesn't even appear on screen when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we'll hear a brand new tune from the band Woods. And in just a few minutes, we chat with double Oscar nominee Skip Levesay, a guy whose name you have never heard, but whose work you probably have. Mm-hmm. First, though, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week are resident etiquette experts Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and join us once a month to solve all your problems forever. It's guaranteed. <laughs> they co-authored Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. Lizzie and Dan, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's an ironclad guarantee. Or your money back. Yeah. Ironclad. That's right. So, Lizzie, quick question for you. What's the yeah. etiquette of starting a web series about etiquette without oh. telling your good friends who may or may not be radio hosts mm-hmm. about it? I Don't deny I, you started a web series. It's called Awkward Moments, and we don't mean to have one here with you, but let's create some. Tell us about awkward moments. It's basically tackling kind of classic etiquette situations in a really fun, slightly edgy way. You've got me posing a question or a topic like, so what do you do when your friend lies to you and you catch them in it? Do you call them out on it? Do you not? And then they've got these great actors um, acting out these scenes and then, Uh. you know, you're cutting back between advice, what to do, what not to do. All right. Well, if you ever need... You know, some great voiceovers. Yeah. I know a couple guys who might be able to help All you. All right. I have no idea who Brendan's talking that. about. Uh, talking about myself and Ira Glass, yeah. but I will talk about that later. <laughs> All right. Speaking of awkward, let's move on to our listener's etiquette question, shall we? Uh, this is something from Chris in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I love this one. Chris writes, how long is it acceptable to stay at a coffee shop after ordering one drink. One. Yes. So I go with a general guideline of about a drink per hour. Really? But I think mm. you could probably slide that up if it's the kind of coffee shop where there's lots of seating, yeah. you're not necessarily displacing or preventing someone else from grabbing a coffee and sitting down. Maybe maybe you could extend that time a little bit as long as you're getting something. But if it's a shop where people are coming and going, about a drink per hour is not a bad general rule to have in mind. Now, why why 60 minutes? It'll allow you to relax and enjoy it a little bit. I, I would personally say a little bit longer. I'd probably push it to the, really? you know, between one and two hours. And then what kind I of time do you have on your hands? Dude, it's Vermont. We got all the time in the world <laughs> yeah. up here. But also, I work out of coffee shops a lot. Well, I'll do yeah. a lot of my, I, I write better. And I, I, I mean, my problem is I'll buy some, a lot of stuff up front. I'll get a cup of tea. Maybe I'll get a breakfast sandwich. Like, and then I figure that allows me like an hour, 45 minutes. But if I bought a tea and then an hour later bought the sandwich, yeah. do, I, do you have to renew I, it? I don't know. You've, you've, you've re- in some ways rented a little more time. At the same time, one <laughs> of the, space w- w- the it's shop. true. There is, though, the issue of people 
making an office out of the coffee shop. And that can definitely be a burden on the business. I will say there are people that come with their laptops and with a stand to put their book on. Yeah. And they come with their water bottle. <laughs> a space heater. A lamp. <laughs> exactly. Like law students. But then again, sometimes on Sunday, I'll go read the paper for an hour and a half. Yeah. Who are you to Me talk? Too. Yeah. I also feel like this but has I evolved think... over the course, like in the early 90s. Yeah. Remember when the whole coffee shop thing hit? The point was to just go and have one coffee and then just sit there and read for hours and hours and socialize. Friends. Central Perk. Sure. I was like eight or nine. I don't remember that. Oh, that's horrifying. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I feel like it's evolved now. I think there's a little bit more frowning upon that sort of well, thing. Well, I would say yeah, for Chris, you take, take your cue from the coffee shop because some coffee shops mm-hmm. will cut off your internet after two hours, uh, for example. Yeah. I think that's, I, I love the advice. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. We never need to have you back on because Brendan's so good at it now. Damn it. We just, Ironclad. So here is Robin in Brooklyn. Robin writes, I love sandwiches. Right there with you, Robin. Uh, At big family meals, she writes, like Thanksgiving or Christmas, I can't resist the urge to take the components on my plate and a roll and construct it into a glorious sandwich form. Some people take issue with it. Am I a heathen? Robin. Okay, so you're at what, like the Thanksgiving, the holiday table, yeah. and you're sitting there stacking yeah. stuff onto a roll, eating it with your hands. Yeah. What's the problem? Boom. I see the problem. <laughs> really? It's- yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe it's because okay, I'm so from an Italian family, but like we put everything on sandwiches anyway. <laughs> at the table, you can't no, put but, you can't put like pasta on a sandwich. No, <laughs> well, this true. is the thing: is that at the table in this kind of a setting, this is the time to use your silverware. Dan had a great idea earlier of eating a smaller portion of food at the table and then like offer to go help with the dishes and make a second's leftover <laughs> sandwich for yourself. I but I think it comes down to, to messiness and and using your hands to eat as opposed to using your silverware in front of others. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask is technically what is wrong with it? I like yeah. to me, instinctively I'm like this person yeah. is a heathen. Sorry Robin. But why are this we is unacceptable. But what is way. yeah, what are the rules? Okay, so eating's a gross activity. Lizzie's father and always no, says yeah. eating's an inherently a gross, gross activity. activity and the intent of good manners is not to gross out the people you're with. Which she says mm. she's doing in the question. <laughs> yes, but this is assuming that the Thanksgiving or Christmas meal is this big formal thing. Like to me Thanksgiving especially, it's your whole family, it's kind of rambling, it's a little ramshackle, there are kids running around, and it's kind of like a time to relax and let everything go. And make a so, sandwich at the table. You're acting like that's the end of the world. This is the, in most places, this is still probably the most formal meal of the year for many households. All right. And uh, it just seems odd then to kind of like treat it like a tailgating party. That's the spirit of it. And <laughs> the answer's in the question. People tell me I'm a heathen. No, they didn't say that. She said people are upset by this. People are upset by this. So the, Some the, the question says that Some this behavior is offending other people this person eats with. So That's... why not avoid that behavior for this one right. time? I say yeah. get a new family. They're snobs. <laughs> you can join Rico this year. Yeah. Robin. I love sandwiches. <laughs> I love sandwiches, too. I'm the, I do, too. I mean, I was sued by the Earl of Sandwich for going by that name a little bit in high school. But, you know, this is like wearing a sweatsuit to church if you're going to church on Christmas. All right. Bingo. Shall I sing this? sandwich song yeah no (laughs) there's a sandwich song there's a all right so this next question comes from ryan in seattle ryan writes i was recently dumped by my live-in boyfriend i've been staying at my parents house ever since while he continues to sleep in my bed at home this arrangement will continue until the end of next month should i feel obligated to pay the full amount for rent a reduced rate or nothing at all man 
That's tough. Yeah. I'm. Let's bear in mind, Ryan starts us off by saying he was the one that was dumped, right? Yes. So how did they wind up in the arrangement where he's paying all this rent? I Personally, I wouldn't be okay with that. Ryan, I say yeah. that you two need to decide whether you're going to prorate it, do a day-by-day thing for how long you were actually in the apartment till. But, man, you need to have the conversation because right now your situation's not fair to you. And I can think of a number of ways you might resolve this, but mm-hmm. I love the way Lizzie started with saying you need to have a conversation. It needs to be candid and you need to be honest with people about what the realities are of the situation are because yeah. money's not something you can necessarily just create more of. If there's not enough yeah. there to handle certain things, yeah. you need to be really upfront and honest with people about that so you can all decide what to do. Uh, and we are coming up on the end of our time. Let, let's go out on something a little more upbeat. Well, first of all, let's give good luck to Ryan. And uh, best yeah, of luck to Ryan. Seriously, good <laughs> and luck. and I agree, situation. Rico. Let's hear the sandwich song. Yes. Something happy. Sandwiches are beautiful. Sandwiches are fine. I like sandwiches. I eat them all the time. I eat them for my supper and I eat them for my lunch. If I had a hundred sandwiches, I'd eat them all at once. <laughs> or what about a brunch? <laughs> Daniel and Lizzie, thanks so much for showing our audience how to behave. Oh, thanks, You're guys. You're most welcome. <laughs> Sandwich, turkey sandwich, tuna sandwich, pizza sandwich. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post Senning, great great grandchildren of etiquette doyenne Emily Post. You can find a link to Lizzie's new web series, Awkward Moments, by going to our Unawkward website. And folks, if you have a question about how to behave, send it to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Sandwich, sandwich, sandwich. Do you dare me to eat this sandwich? And now, time for chattering class, in which we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. The topic today, the art of sound mixing in the movies, and we could have no better teacher than Skip Levesay, who this year is nominated for not one, but two sound mixing Oscars. One for his work on the sci-fi masterpiece Gravity, and one for the otherwise criminally under-nominated Coen Brothers masterpiece Inside Lewin Davis, Skip, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, first of all, as anyone who has ever tried to win their Oscar-watching betting pool knows, there are two sound categories at the Oscars. There's sound editing and your gig, sound mixing. What is the difference? <laughs> it's uh, it's basically like if you were going to make a cake, you would have a crew that would assemble all the ingredients, and then you would have another crew that would mix them all together and mix the batter together and pour it into a bowl. So the editors would be the people getting the ingredients assembled and the correct ones. And then the mixer would be the one putting it all together in a bowl and pouring it into the baking pan. So basically the sound editors kind of gather sound. They create and they gather sound effects and and different sounds. And then your job is to put them all together so they sound good. That's it. All right. (laughs) At last. (laughs) But here's my question. It's not always true that you would have two people doing that job. I mean, when I make a cake at home, I do both of those jobs. Why are they so separate? Well, actually, I do both uh, quite often. I did both jobs on Lewin Davis, for instance. And in the past, I have received two nominations for the same year for the same film. But I think it's far more common that there are actually two different crews operating quite separately and independently. So you do both. Which would you prefer if you had to choose one or the other? That's a tough question. I really enjoy the editorial part because you're very deeply involved up to your neck and ears in all the minutiae that's going to make the movie into something really special. And you're spending a lot of quality time with all the artists, the director and the filmmakers. The mix is also very exciting for another reason, though, because all, everything is coming together and it's it's a very expensive, uh, very sort of heady process. So 
it's kind of the big finale. So it's kind of the one is more being out in the world and working with artists. The other is kind of being in a surrounded by beautiful technology and weaving stuff together. And sweating every single <laughs> syllable. <laughs> All right, let's hear a couple of examples of your work from this year, and you can tell us about the intricacies involved. First of all, we've got a clip from Gravity, which for the five people who haven't seen it, is about spacewalking astronauts. Their ship is destroyed. They try to survive while floating in orbit over Earth. This is the moment early on where all hell breaks loose. Right. We've lost Houston. We've lost Houston. Look, we need to get the hell out of here. Get some help there, man. No, don't wait for us. Man down. Man down. Okay, so I can tell you I do a lot of sound mixing for this show, and listening to that gives me nightmares. <laughs> it is so complicated. First of all, do you remember how many sound elements were involved there? How many in- individual sounds? Probably um, more than 200. Where do you begin with something like that? Well, it's all about the dialogue. Drama is all about what the actors are doing and how they're relating to each other and how they're informing the audience about what's happening and what they're feeling. And that almost always comes in the expression on their face and what they're saying. Now, in this case, both of those stars are in spacesuits, so their voices are constantly manipulated. They're speaking through intercoms or they're inside a helmet. What were the difficulties of that? Well, it became a, a matter of having as little of the radio processing on the voices as we could get away with. Because the more filtered the voices were, the less dramatic and detail and depth there was to the performances. And we were diminishing the performances, the more filtering and the more sort of realistic we tried to make it. I can just imagine (laughs) the arguments over incremental details that must start happening. Like, no, we need just a little more crackle. No, no, that's too much crackle. Now we're Mm -hmm. losing a little bit of emotion. That was it. (laughs) We had that discussion, you know, continuously for three weeks. All right, let's move on to probably my favorite movie this year, Inside Lewin Davis. Totally opposite end of the spectrum. (laughs) Favoritism, huh? Sorry, dude. That's what (laughs) I'm pulling for. It's about a struggling folk musician in the 60s. This is the scene where uh, Lewin is in a car. He's on a road trip. He's talking to a jazz man played by John Goodman, who is not a fan of folk music. Solo act? Yeah, now. Now? Used to what? Work with a cat? Every time he'd play a C major, he'd puke a hairball. I used to have a partner. What happened? Threw himself off the George Washington Bridge. It seems so simple, that scene. What is special about it? That scene was filmed uh, in a stationary car, and the whole traveling image was created digitally. So you created all of that road sound. That none of that existed. Created is a, is a bit of a broad term for recording a bunch of automobile sounds. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, you're being humble though. There's more to this scene than that. The uh, the sound of the cars driving by, for instance, you can tell there's been a lot done to recreate that whoosh. We did. It was a bit of a challenge. Those car buys and what what is that? What? The car buy. Oh, the, so the, so when the when a car passes by, it's like the the automobile equivalent of a footstep. It's called a car buy. A car buy. We, we kind of went to the basic, had a recorder, and we drove a car by the recorder. <laughs> but oftentimes, particularly at the volume that we ended up playing it at to be realistic, you know, it sounds kind of, mm. It doesn't have impact. No. So 
we added a sound. We, If you analyze it, when a car passes you on two-lane blacktop, very close, going the opposite direction, and that creates kind of a whoosh, which doesn't actually sound like a car. It just sounds like Oh, yeah. So... Actually, the whoosh that we use is a sound that I had recorded for Barton Fink for the Coen brothers years ago. From the movie Barton Fink? Yeah, it's from like a a recording studio door that had a big difference in air conditioning from one side to another. So whenever you open that door, you got a big like whoosh. (laughs) That sounds like a car buy, doesn't it? Yeah. Why didn't you just use your voice and put it on the soundtrack? That was pretty good. It's tempting. (laughs) I'm sure it is. Uh, Skip Levesay, good luck on Oscar night. Thanks so much. If I had wings dove, I'd fly up the river to the one I love. And this, of course, is actor Oscar Isaac in Lewin Davis performing one of the many live songs in the film, which is another sound element in which Skip had a hand. Nice. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't know this, but Oscar's voice was created by mixing distant bird calls <laughs> with the sounds of rustling newspaper and the patter of light drizzle on an awning. Sounds great. One morning, drizzling rain. All right, and that concludes this encore episode of the Dinner Party Download, folks. Tune in next week for an all-new episode. Till then, you can chat with us all week on Twitter, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Esther Mania is our intern. Brittany Martin's our digital assistant. Engineering help came from Ravi Carmen and Bill Lance. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The folk rock band Woods launch a summer tour in just a few weeks. Here's their tune, Moving to the Left. Bon appétit. That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks. All right, guys. It's time to get out of here. Uh, we're paying customers, sir. We bought this macchiato. Yeah, that was five hours ago. Okay, uh, then we'd like to order one biscotti. Two plates.